and welcome back to The Mentors. This is Vadim. And Sergey. And you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs, leaders, and creators despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today, we're super excited to have Andrew Clark, CEO of Zovio, on the podcast today. Andrew is the founder of this company, which is now actually a public education company, public company, I should say. And this is an upstart university. Well, I should say it was an upstart university 16 years ago or so. And now they've grown to the point where they're one of the largest online education providers. And we're just really excited to learn from Andrew about how you even start a college. And then we're going to spend a part of the conversation talking about the future of online education and higher education. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Sergey Vadim. I really appreciate you both having me on. Of course. Now, Andrew, I know that you graduated from University of Phoenix. You got your MBA there and you started working for them and rose through the ranks, getting them to some of the highest enrollment numbers that they saw in their history. So clearly your promotions at a young age in that organization were clearly well-deserved. But then at some point, you ended up transitioning to starting a college. And, you know, you probably had opportunities. I'm sure you had opportunities to get into higher education and maybe build out innovative education models for established college and, and higher education programs. But instead, you decided to take a risk and start a completely new education brand that, you know, most people probably had never heard of and grow from, from the beginning, from their very early stages. And on this podcast, we love to hear those origin stories and we love to interview entrepreneurs about how they get started. But we've never had an entrepreneur that started a higher education program. So we're really excited to hear how you did that. But let's let's go through those some of those initial first steps. When did the idea of starting a college actually enter your mind? Uh, how did that come about? Well, I think, you know, it came about when I was working for University of Phoenix, uh, probably around 2001, 2002. And Phoenix at the time was, you know, just starting to kind of look at online education and and could you provide a college education online the dot com bubble was in full force and actually i think you know popped shortly after i started thinking about this and i i said at the time most universities like phoenix would would increase their tuition 7 8% annually public universities even even uh, to a greater extent you know 12 13% and i said you know if you apply online education uh, in a quality way to college, you ought to be able to save a tremendous amount of money by not having the huge campus infrastructure. And you ought to be able to then take that savings and pass it along to a lot of Americans who must feel priced out of the uh, opportunity to go to college and get a college degree. And that was kind of the genesis for my idea of starting my own education company at the time. And kind of the crazy idea of going out and buying a university. <laughs> yeah, that is a little bit of a crazy idea, uh, I must admit. And, you know, it's interesting that nearly 20 years later, we're, we're still talking about how the internet is going to change higher education and most established higher education institutions don't quite yet. Maybe now because of COVID, they have more of an online uh, delivery of classes, right? But because they were forced into it, but it hasn't been optimized and it's not something that, that uh, universities prioritize. But you were thinking about this way back in, 2001. So walk us through what steps you took from being an operator in universities or established, established, I should say, upstart universities still, to then starting your own. How do you even go about doing that? What was the decision you made 
of, you know, either do you start on your own or do you go buy one? And how do you go about choosing one even to buy and then getting the funds to do so? Yeah, well, there's a lot there. I mean, you know, I decided that I was fortunate at, at University of Phoenix, the almost 10 years I spent there, that I actually got to start up a lot of things inside University of Phoenix. I was a entrepreneur inside a large organization. And I think that gave me a lot of confidence about my own ability to eventually start my own company. And then, you know, I love being on on your show and love the title of your show, The Mentors, because I would never have taken the big leap to start my own company if I didn't have great mentors along the way. And and I was very fortunate that I benefited from some some really great uh, mentors when I was uh, at Phoenix. But I had no experience in, in really starting my own company outside the security of a big company and had no experience in raising money. I had you know, only written business plans in my MBA classes, but nothing really beyond that. And didn't even really know how to go raise capital to start a company. All I knew really, really well was was higher education, the cost of higher education, that a lot of Americans were getting priced out of the opportunity, and that, you know, there had to be a way to solve that problem using online technologies as they were emerging back in those days. So then was your very first step to turn to your mentors or professionals in your network that could help kind of fill the gap and educate you on what you needed to do to raise that money to take that next step to to get it off the ground? Yeah. And how do you even toe that line? A lot of people that consider themselves entrepreneurs in larger organizations, they may not have someone that they can go to and honestly say, hey, listen, I'm going to start my own thing. Can you help me? So how did you do that? Yeah, you know, it's great. I a Great question. I never was afraid at any point in time to ask anybody for help and had a pretty good self-awareness, keen awareness that there was a lot I didn't know. And so I, I utilized a network to really try and identify a set of professionals within my network that had experience at raising money from private equity firms, angel investors, VC firms. It was funny, I went to a venture capitalists meeting in San Diego where I started the company originally. And uh, it was right after the dot-com bubble had burst. And I introduced myself to uh, a venture capitalist who was there to meet um, you know, young enterprising guys like myself who were starting their own companies up. And I told them that I wanted to you know, acquire a university and, and eventually you know, put college uh, degree programs online. And he just started laughing at me. And he's like, did, did you not just see what happened with the dot-com uh, burst here? Uh, you know, you couldn't pay me to give you a single dollar uh, to invest in any kind of internet company. He kind of viewed, viewed us as an internet company, basically, and wished me good luck and, and went on to meet the next person in the room. So you have a lot of experiences like that when you start something new. Uh, I'm not unique there. Every entrepreneur has, had, has at least uh, one story like that. And you know, I just kept persisting and talking with a variety of people and, and just continuing to network and ask questions and, until, you know, I would, until I'd get to a place where I found funding or I got to a place where I had, you know, good legal advice to, you know, incorporate the company, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's just, you know, knowing what your goal is, persisting and finding people, mentors that can help you get there. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, and, and of course, you did have 
credibility uh, in this space, in the higher education space, given your background. But still, you were a guy in your 30s, right, trying to start an online university after the dot-com boom. And most people actually go out and do raise their initial capital from angel investors and seed capital funds. But you ended up raising capital from a private equity firm. How did you convince a PE shop to invest in a pre-pre-seed company when you couldn't even convince VCs to do it? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It was it was pretty crazy to be honest with you. I, you know, I, I I had you know zero idea of what I was doing, and, and that probably benefited me. And by zero idea, I mean you know I didn't really know kind of what the rules were, and and that private equity firms, at least big, large, meaningful private equity firms rarely made any kind of venture capital-esque type of investment. And because I didn't know that, it didn't slow me down from getting every meeting I could with every PE firm. And I got lucky at the time because there was a lot of interest in for-profit education companies. This was around 2003. But but nobody was really interested in, in the online uh, side of it because that was so new and completely untested. Uh, so uh, I was fortunate that I was able to get meetings pretty easily. Of course, getting a meeting and then getting funding, there's there's a big chasm between those two things, as you guys know. And uh, and so it, uh, I thought it would take months and uh, I was pretty lucky I, I got funding within a year. Wow, that's great. And do you remember how much that initial investment was? Oh, I totally remember. Um, because I, I really, uh, again, I was really fortunate. All of the funding that I tried to raise, I, I basically was cold calling. I was knocking on doors. Um, uh, and I happened to get a, a referral that I should call this uh, private equity firm in New York called Warburg Pincus, one of the top private equity firms in the country. I called them up and they had a... a uh, associate that was in charge of their education portfolio, uh, which was um, very small at the time. And I'd never been to New York City. I flew to New York for the first time. I didn't have, I don't think there was Google Maps back then. I didn't know where Lexington Avenue was, where where they were uh, headquartered and uh, walked into that PE firm and sat down and met with them for about an hour and asked for $60 million at the end of the hour. (laughs) And he he about fell off his chair laughing. Uh, (laughs) And long story short, Warburg Pickus ended up committing $20 million uh, and was my one and only financial sponsor, uh, which I'm really, I think, you know, actually grateful for. A lot of entrepreneurs end up with multiple investors. They, they can have a lot of different investors in their boardroom. Sometimes that creates kind of competing interests and agendas uh, and priorities. But in my case, I just had one investor that I used um, that supported all my capital needs until we went public in 2009. If you remember, do you think there's anything in particular you said that really resonated with them in that meeting where they ended up giving you, you know, a, a third of what you asked for, but a, a very, very large sum that you asked for? Well, um, I think the thing that resonate, resonated with them was not just my decades experience in the in the industry, but I was also bringing a team with them, uh, with me. I had a team of, of supporting executives to help grow this business that also was very experienced in the sector. Funny enough, though, not a lot of us had experience in online, and but that was kind of okay because nobody really had a lot of experience in online uh, education and providing uh, college education online. So I, I think it was just you know all the experience that I had 
and the team uh, that I was bringing to the venture that really kind of convinced them that, you know, hey, we ought to back these guys. And, and, and our, our thesis was a really good one. And it ended up proving out to be a really good one. Yeah, that makes sense. And you mentioned it took about a year to raise capital. And I, I want our listeners to note that we tell folks that oftentimes it will take six months to a year if you're good and you're lucky to raise uh, the capital that you need. And of course, Andrew had already a wealth of experience to, to draw from. And so even for him, it took a year, but you did end up getting that substantial amount to get the company off the ground. All right. So you, you get that $20 million wired into the company bank account. What's the first thing you do to start a college? Well, it was funny. I, you know, we, we had to go find a university that was basically a quality institution that was financially struggling. And, and so that's, that's like a needle in a haystack. And in universities, as you would suspect, don't exactly put for sale signs out because they don't want to lose the students that they currently have um, who might be afraid that the institution might you know, close or, or go away. And so again, you know, we had to use a really strong network of people that were very well connected within higher education to learn about this really wonderful, small liberal arts university that was in Eastern Iowa, but only had about 340 students, uh, was owned by Franciscan nuns, who owned uh, a lot of different types of businesses, but they'd owned the university since uh, its its founding back in 1918. And they were continuing to funnel about $2.5 million annually into the university to help it persist. And, and that just wasn't sustainable. So they had to, uh, they, they did what any you know parent company would do. They, they looked around at the businesses that were performing well. They kept those. The ones that weren't, like the university uh, who was struggling financially, they decided to to sell that, and uh, we got lucky again because they actually were going to sell to uh, another buyer and weren't able to come to terms. And so initially, they told me that I was, you know, um, not selected. They'd gone with another buyer, and then I think about six months went by, and. They called me up, and the president did, and said, "Hey, would you still be interested? Because the buyer we had is, is you know, we've, we've separated from them, and, and we're looking for somebody new." And so I said, "Yeah, I was still looking at the time, and had talked to other universities at the time, and uh, was very close, in fact, with another school uh, to buying that school." But you know, things have a way of of working out when you're starting something new, and this was kind of, I think, meant to be. And I flew out to Eastern Iowa, uh, Clinton, Iowa, and uh, long story. Short, we we bought this small uh, university from Franciscan nuns. Wow, that's that's a really cool story. I have to ask, uh, they didn't have that much leverage, I suppose, since another buyer walked away. But are nuns good negotiators? Uh, from my one experience, and I only have one, they're fantastic negotiators. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Franciscan nuns, especially, you know, they were really wonderful people. Um, and even after we bought the university, there were several um, nuns that were professors there uh, on the university campus that stayed for, gosh, a decade uh, and continued to teach. And one of them was the most popular faculty member uh, at the campus at the university. So we had a great relationship with them even after we acquired the university. That's great. Now, the next question that I'm sure is coming to everyone's mind is, 
you know, how do you take a university or a school that has just a couple hundred enrolled students and grow it from there when there's really no brand recognition there? How do you convince people to take a chance on a college, a, a school that no one really knows about? What did you guys do initially to start growing those numbers and, and improving the metrics? Well, it was, it was, uh, it's a great question. It was really difficult back then. First of all, the university was called the Franciscan University of the Prairies. And that's not an easy uh, name to, to market to people. And when we bought the university, we immediately changed the name of the university to Ashford University. And then at the time, you know, again, online was early days and people were somewhat hesitant to take an online college course or degree program unless they understood that it was attached to what they thought of at the at that point time as a as a real university and a, you know a brick and mortar you know college dorms and and classrooms and a place that they could come and touch and feel and it had sports teams and and all of the trappings of a you know what you would see at most universities um, that people can think of in their communities and and once they knew that then they became more comfortable with the idea of taking online courses uh, from an online degree program from a university that had a kind of a physical campus that that anchored it. Now that of course went away and dissipated over the years as online college education became more and more prevalent and more and more universities started doing it and then um, you know the consumer basically began to not require that you know there be some traditional university attached to that college offering. So it changed. But in the early days, it was challenging. And we did a decent job of marketing the school in those early days. And we utilized, we, we got fortunate in the name of the school. I mean, uh, we didn't name it Ashford for this reason, but A is at the top of the list and <laughs> alphabetically. And, and that really, ironically, was one of the things that helped in the early days. Yeah. Wow. Any little bit helps. Do you recall what some of the more successful early marketing campaigns were that you did? Because I agree, that's very difficult to convince people early on to take a chance on a new model. Yeah, well, it, it's interesting. Back in those days, digital marketing was certainly nowhere near what it is today. And there were large uh, aggregators back in those days who pretty much dominated all of the sectors, the financial sector, the insurance sector, and, and the education sector. And so what you would do is you would do a marketing contract with one of those aggregators who would then basically use Google uh, and, and keyword uh, searches. And they would capture people that were interested then in going to school online. And then they would have a, a directory kind of, uh, and that's why Ashford works so well. They'd have a directory and the directory happened to be alphabetical. And so many of the students, that uh, prospective students that would go to one of these kind of aggregator sites would, would come across Ashford first. And there's just a tendency by people to, to kind of click on uh, the first thing that they see and, and the first name on the list. That's why, you know, most people don't go past the first page on, on, a, on a Google search, right? So it's the same sort of concept. And, and because of that, we just had a lot of people that would click on on Ashford, and and we had then on the website all the imagery and this and the support of this this traditional campus that we had in Iowa. Which, by the way, we invested I think over a period of time about forty million dollars into 
updating that campus and building it out and making it um, even more meaningful for the students that were going to school in Clinton, Iowa. That's very cool. By the way, were you you said you started this firm in, in San Diego. Were you in Iowa at the time to, to build this out or were you trying to run everything fully remotely? That's a great question. And it's kind of a funny story because I actually got teamed up with another private equity firm before Warbird Pincus. And it was about mid-2003, we decided that we were going to try and acquire this university that was in Minnesota. And basically, we had the ability to acquire it. And the president of the private equity firm said, well, Andrew, I want you to move to Minnesota if we're going to write the check to buy this and support you guys. And I said, well, that's really nice, but I can I can run everything from San Diego. I don't need to be in Minnesota. I, I said, I'll, you know, I'll spend a lot of time out there in my first year or so, but I can run a lot of it from San Diego. And, and he's like, well, well I'm not going to write a check then. And so we, he never wrote the check. We never bought the school and the deal never happened, which was fortuitous and great because then I ended up teaming up with Warburg Pincus and we eventually ended up buying Ashford. And we were headquartered in San Diego, but uh, I would say, gosh, in the early days, 90% of what we were doing was really back in Iowa. So we did spend a lot of time on on airplanes, uh, kind of flying back and forth between Iowa and San Diego. Got it. Now, of course, Bridgepoint Education, which it was known as at the time, uh, and now Zovio has changed a lot over the years. And I want to get into a second about what the company is today. But what would you say were the steps that you took and the innovations that your team implemented that you think, in your opinion, led to your success? I'm sure there are many things, and we could probably talk for hours about all of the things that you did. But between that period and about in the mid-2000s to, to 2009, when you guys went public, what were some of those key innovations and activities that really helped you grow as an institution? Well, I think we did a couple of really smart things. Um, one is we bought off-the-shelf systems. We didn't try and build proprietary systems, which a lot of schools um, or companies had tried to do. So we we didn't have legacy systems. We were able to keep our costs. You know, our whole focus was provide a quality education while keeping a lot of the costs that you would traditionally see in in a college university you know, as low or as efficient as we possibly could. And um, we really benefited from buying off-the-shelf technology and using that technology uh, to, to provide our classes. The other really smart, innovative thing we decided was, you know, universities to this day, you know, typically start, you know, in the fall. They start in the kind of winter, spring, January, February uh, and then there's a summer session. So maybe there's three or four starts in a year uh, where students can you know, begin their college education. We said, well, what if you could start anytime you wanted? Like, how would that work? And we literally made a decision that we were going to have the ability for a student to start any week of the year except for the last two weeks. So 50 out of 52 weeks of the year a student would have the ability to begin their college education. And that was a fantastic little piece of innovation because, you know, once somebody had made the decision to go back to school, they didn't want to wait for six, eight, 12 weeks till they could start school. They wanted to start as soon as they could. And the other way in which that benefited students was if they needed to take a break, they didn't have to wait six, eight, or 12 weeks to come back to school either. They could take a, a week or two off, 
and literally start right back into their academic studies after a couple of weeks and not have to take an entire semester away. I, I think that's one of the biggest early innovations that, that we did uh, when we started uh, started the company that was really beneficial. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really cool, but it also sounds very difficult to pull off. How did you guys pull that off? I mean, you you have to manage, you know, you have to have, have some sort of predictive ability to understand enrollment numbers and instructors and manage schedules. So how do you do a how do you let people start any week? That sounds impossible. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, fortunately we were small and and so it was easy to do in, uh, when we were small, but then of course as we were growing and and as word spread that, you know, hey, you could you could go online and you could start, you know, almost uh, any week of the year. We started scaling up and having more and more student interest. And, and we were actually like super surprised. Uh, we, we, we were going to be really happy if we had about, you know, gosh, 10,000 student university. That would be spectacular. And I think we had about 10,000 students uh, at Ashford University by about 2000 and early 2007, probably. Um, so it happened really quickly once kind of word started spreading. Um, and we had, to, we had to put a bunch of systems and processes in place to try and manage that. We needed, you know, good quality faculty with, uh, with the right... Um, you know, terminal degrees and the right experience and background, they had to be quality reviewed. The curriculum was standardized and, and that's unique to an institution. So rather than each professor doing it differently, teaching algebra differently uh, or, you know, business ethics differently, there was one kind of prescribed way in which the dean of the business school, for example, had set a certain course to be. And that provided efficiency in terms of costs. It also provided better learning outcomes because the curriculum was standardized. We knew you know, exactly what was supposed to be learned in a particular class uh, by a student. So there was all kinds of like little innovations like that that we did all along the way. And, and, and being innovative like that really has benefited us today because we've just kind of have that ingrained in our culture, like to always be thinking about different ways in which we can approach problems and solve for problems in a way that increases or improves learning or increases access uh, to a learner, somebody who's, you know, today, whether they're trying to get a degree or whether they're trying to learn just a short, you know, kind of skills-based, self-paced course, which we offer that through um, one of the uh, subsidiaries here at, at Zovio now. So, that innovation was really important to us back then and and is really, you know, fueled uh, what we look like today. Yeah. So let's let's talk about today in the in the final five or ten minutes or so of this episode. Because when you go on the Zovio website right now, it looks like you guys do a lot. But you know, one of the things that you mentioned on your website is that you provide education or ed tech services for higher ed institutions, for businesses, for companies. And it sounds like you also offer education directly yourselves. And last year, for example, you guys acquired Full Stack Academy, which is a well-known coding bootcamp. So how has the company evolved to, to what it is today? And how would you describe what you guys do today and what your specialty is? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. I mean, I'm really excited about where we are today. I, I have to say it's almost like starting two companies uh, because two years ago, I made a decision that we were coming upon a really pivotal moment in terms of education, higher education, 
and skills-based learning. And as a company, we need to make we need to needed to make a pivot to change to be in a position to take advantage of exactly what I saw coming down uh, the tracks here in terms of the different way in which people are are learning now and and will continue to learn. And so we kind of have this saying around the company that you know our job is to help learners learn wherever they are because and and. and Gosh, COVID nineteen has has amplified this. You know, you could be anywhere in the world, literally, uh, and be in a position to learn. And at, at Zovio, we think about that in terms of, you know, like you mentioned, full stack academy and and coding and cybersecurity uh, courses, eventually data analytics. Um, at Learn at Forbes, we think about that in really short form skills based courses that people take online at their own pace. They're not instructor-led. They can take them whenever they want and whatever pace they want. And uh, in in that, that business is really taking off and uh, provided entirely remotely uh, through, through, uh, through the, the, the internet and computers. And, and, you know, it's an exciting time. Probably, this is probably more exciting than how things were back in 2003, 2004, when I first started the company in terms of just the incredible disruption and change. And Zovio has really positioned itself strategically and purposely at the forefront of that change where we can offer educational technology or services to employers, to universities, or to individual learners themselves. And so would that look like, you know, for let's say for universities, would that look like you essentially, for lack of a better term, white labeling and letting them use your tools to be able to provide online education? It could look that way, but but how we um, think of it is kind of in, in two different approaches. One is what we call an enterprise approach, where we literally can kind of do all of the services that exist for a university in a student's life cycle, from when they're a prospective student to applying to becoming uh, a student at the university to um, learning at the university to eventually graduating. We also can do that in an a la carte type of fashion. So one of the things that we do here at Zovio is, for example, is we use data analytics to try and really personalize learning. And the way in which that manifests itself a good example is we have a, a student retention product um, that's a data analytics solution that can identify when a student who's studying online is beginning to have difficulty and is showing behaviors that would lead them to likely dropping out of college. And of course, all universities, one of the fundamental things that they that they want to accomplish is to retain students to have those students learn and have them eventually graduate. And so through this data analytic model that we have, we allow for early intervention. So we have, it's kind of coupled as a technology solution and a services solution because we can use the institution's data to identify students that are at risk of dropping out of the university. Um, And then we have the workforce here that can make those early phone calls or interventions, emails, whatever it may be, to try and get that student back on track. And what's really cool about it is the student might not even know really that they're off track and that they're thinking about dropping. Mm. <laughs> we, we know it through our, uh, through our data analytics before they do. 
which gives us an opportunity to, to work with the student um, through advisors and through faculty to keep them uh, engaged at the school. So that's one uh, product example. The other thing that universities, of course, are really intently focused on is recruiting the right student to begin with that fits at their institution. And we have a lot of, again, data analytics and modeling that allows us to help a university identify, you know, who is the right student for your institution and where where can you go to find those students and compete and differentiate yourselves amongst, you know, that ideal student who might be looking at one of the other, um, you know, you know, one of your other competitors. Got it. That's that's really interesting. And it sounds like these kind of technologies should be used by uh, by most universities at this point, especially on the data side. I mean, you have universities with tens of thousands of students, and it sounds like you kind of have to collect that data to know how to serve them best. So my last question to you, Andrew, is let's say that there's a student out there right now, maybe that's listening to this podcast, or not a student, but a prospective student, I should say. Maybe they're thinking about getting their graduate degree at, you know, an unknown established uh, institution, let's say like NYU, for example, or they're also looking at these different coding boot camps and they're looking at these continuing education programs and they're looking at six month programs or two week programs and or I was just at six week programs and they're finding it hard to decide which one they should choose. You know, some of them are accredited, some are not accredited, but people seem to be getting high paying jobs from them and that's what they're prioritizing. How do they in your opinion, go about thinking about selecting the right continuing education model for them, given what you think is happening now with higher education, given what you think is happening now to many schools being willing and forced to to move online and that being more accessible to folks? What, what would your advice be to that person? Well, that's, that's a great question, especially in the middle of, of a pandemic. And uh, I think uh, the pandemic itself is accelerating changes in consumer behavior that were starting to occur several years ago. But but now they've just, you know, kind of poured gasoline uh, on those changes on the on that fire. And 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 so I think, you know, deciding about your learning is a very personal decision. And it's one of the most personal decisions, I think, that people make, um, whether it's, you know, parents making decisions about their children's learning at an early age, or whether it's a student, adult student, who's thinking uh, about all the various kinds of scenarios that you just laid out. And uh, I think you have to, I think that that person has to really think about things in almost entrepreneurial startup kind of way. You know, how much capital do I have? <laughs> What's my What's my kind of personal balance sheet look like? What am, what am I trying to accomplish career-wise? How much capital do I have to invest towards that? What are the things that can get me towards those goals in terms of learning? Uh, it might be that, you know, I really see technology as the future. I'm, you know, particularly good at math. And I, I've never really thought about coding and being a, a developer as, as a career. But, you know, gosh, maybe that's the direction I should go. To try and help students solve, you know, really the answer to your, the question you're posing, we actually use an AI tool on Learn at Forbes. It's called Forbes Smart Advisor that basically you can take in 60 seconds and it will give you a sense of the types of careers that you ought to pursue given your, your, uh, your interests and your personality uh, and your skills and then it lays out if you don't have those skills, you know, here's here's the the courses you could actually go take to get those skills to get uh, a particular job. Um, I think today more and more, you know, students are questioning 
Should I get an MBA? Should I get a graduate degree? Do I need to have a graduate degree? Do I need to get an undergraduate degree? And I, I, I think that, you know, short course skills-based learning is going to become just more and more prevalent as the newer generations who are so used to technology understand quickly that when they come out of high school, they can start earning an income in a job, but also continue to learn online and then continue through that learning to advance themselves professionally and make you know greater income and do things that they really are interested and passionate about. So, it, you know, it's a personal decision. They should do a lot of research. There's a lot of different tools out there. We have one on Learn at Forbes that, that people can use. But it's it's probably also one of the most important decisions they'll make. So they, they should give it um, a lot of thought. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And and I actually think it's it's amazing what we're seeing now, which is that I think students have a lot more power now. There's a lot more flexibility. There's less rigidity in the path that you can take. You can spend less money and spend less time and have just as good outcomes as somebody else that maybe goes the traditional route. And maybe that traditional route is right for some folks. But I, I always love that flexibility. And that that is what the kind of innovations that Zovio and organizations like yours are enabling. And Vadim and I are proponents of that. We think that's super exciting. Andrew Clark, thank you so much for spending this time with us and joining us on the Mentors Podcast. We loved hearing about your story. I loved hearing about your thoughts about the future of education. We're gonna see a lot of changes happening, structural changes happening to higher ed now. And uh, we appreciate you sharing your insights on that as well. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Really appreciate you having me on. 